Do you think that um, his, other historians look at John T- Tyler and um, can't get past the fact that civil war breaks out and and he's part of the Confederacy mm-hmm. called a traitor? Here's an American president who joins the Confederacy, the rebellion against Washington. Um, is that part of the issue that troubles historians and in, in, in John, this is their their view of his presidency? Yeah, I, I think so. I think to some extent his uh, desire and his the, the eventual joining of the Confederate government really undermined any kind of sympathy that people people at the time and people later had for him. Um, I think that to some extent by the 18, early 1860s, the American people were were tending to look a little bit more favorably upon his actions as president. But his action in in joining the Confederate government and actively seeking to become part of the Confederate government really washed away a lot of that goodwill. And I think most historians, um, rightly so, fault him for that. I actually um, argue that he should be faulted for that, not only because he abandoned his oath of office largely, but also because it it ended up putting his wife and second family in a difficult position uh, later on. And he, you know, his, his wife was 30, his second wife was 30 years younger. She had a long time to live after John Tyler. And she had a hard time navigating the traitor president label. So I think I, I argue in the book that he was quite selfish about this uh, he should have stayed out of it. But I definitely think that historians have looked at that final act of his life as as something that was, you know, that really undermined any kind of good he may have done earlier in his career. Today, we have this concept of the um, ex-president's club, you know, the, the, uh, Bill Clinton and George Bush, and they play golf together and they're good right. buddies and they do all these commercials and run around the world was was there a concept like that of like the ex president's club and did Tyler have a relationship at all with Abraham Lincoln? Uh, Tyler, it's a good question, uh, interesting question. Tyler met Lincoln once uh, in January of 1861 or February of 1861 uh, during the secession crisis and came away. Uh, unimpressed with Lincoln and very angry that Lincoln would refuse to compromise with Tyler's plans to try to create a a peaceful settlement to secession. Um, so he did, you know, he did run into Lincoln. He did have contact with Lincoln that one time, um, but was not uh, certainly not very friendly or disposed towards him uh, in a friendly way. And the feeling was mutual. Uh, Lincoln certainly uh, did not accord much respect to what Tyler was trying to do during the secession winter. Uh, when Tyler died, uh, Lincoln made sure that the flags in the Capitol were, you know, not at, at half mast. He didn't want to honor an American president who had betrayed his oath of office. Um, so there wasn't really anything uh, of, of an ex-president's club. The only the only real connection that Tyler had to uh to presidents as an ex-president. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a meeting once with James K. Polk uh, not long after he left office, and he also was able to help secure a position for his son in the Franklin Pierce administration. So there was some tangential con- uh, contact between Tyler and later presidents, um, but certainly nothing like we would come later and nothing like the um, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton relationship. Um 
We're, we're in the, the mid 1800s. Um, American Jewry is not that large. It's before massive immigration from Eastern Europe. Um, right. You see some connections uh, with uh, between John Tyler and uh, individual Jews, maybe the Jewish community. Uh, Mordecai Noah comes to mind in the 1840s. Just a little bit about that. I mean, I don't, it doesn't sound like it was a significant part of Tyler's presidency or whatever, but so if you can elucidate a little bit on, on Mordecai Noah and that relationship. Yeah, Mordecai Noah was a, a pretty prominent figure uh, in New York City history, particularly in the 1830s and 1840s. He had at one point, I think under the Madison administration, had been the U.S. Consul of Tunisia. Um, he had been a Jacksonian Democrat. Um, in fact, at one point, I believe he was Grand Sachem of Tammany Hall, the Democratic political machine in New York City. He also served for a time on the criminal bench of New York City. And he was also a journalist, which is really how he and Tyler came to cross paths in the uh, early 1840s. Uh, Noah actually liked Tyler's approach to politics, liked that middle of the road approach. Uh, so I guess Noah kind of, you know, realized what Tyler was all about when later historians haven't given him credit for that. Uh, liked the notion that Tyler was trying to bring both sides together, um, found that a paper called The Union, uh, which became a, a pro-Tyler paper, that was really, at least in its infancy, designed to try to drum up support for Tyler in New York City. Noah also became the head of the Tyler General Committee in New York City, and it was in this capacity that he acted as a political operative for John Tyler. Uh, At one point, Tyler sent Noah down to Richmond, Virginia, to meet with Thomas Ritchie, another newspaper editor, perhaps the most influential uh, newspaper editor in the country at the time. He was the uh, editor of the Richmond Inquirer. And the goal or the mission for Noah to go down there was to find out if Southern Democrats and Virginia Democrats more specifically would support Tyler's run for president in 1844. Uh, Ritchie uh, told Noah that no, they would not support Tyler. Uh, Noah went back to Washington, had a meeting with Tyler at the White House where he informed him of the bad news. And at one point, um, Noah told Tyler that he believed that the way Tyler was trying to go about building a third party was not the way to do it. Tyler had tried to use the patronage, had tried to uh, throw out everybody that didn't support him from the patronage positions throughout the United States and tried to replace them with pro-Tyler men. Uh, Noah thought this was a wrong-headed approach, and on that, they they largely parted company. Interesting. I guess patronage uh, that took place in Tammany Hall was a little different than what Tyler was trying to do on a national level. Yes, I think so. Is is patronage. Um, What were Tyler's um, religious views towards religious minorities in general? Um, And is is the letter that he sent to Jacob Ezekiel in 47 reflective of those, those views? Well, um, Tyler was was largely a religious pluralist. Um, he actually, he was an Episcopalian, uh, didn't really go to church much, was not a regular churchgoer, uh, but was Episcopalian um, at his birth. You know, that was the religion that he practiced when he did practice religion, um, but held very uh, moderate views, in fact, enlightened views uh, about other religions. For example, at one point, he thought about sending his daughter, Mary, his eldest daughter, to 
Georgetown Seminary, Georgetown Catholic School for Girls in Washington, D.C. And this was at a time when anti-Catholic and anti-Irish uh, sentiment was beginning to take shape that would, would ultimately lead to the, the big nativist craze in the late 1840s and early 1850s. Tyler also praised the Muslim religion, what he called the Mohammedan religion at one point. Um, you mentioned Jacob Ezekiel. In the wake of uh, William Henry Harrison's death, uh, Tyler had issued a proclamation where he proclaimed that a Christian people, meaning the, the residents of the United States, a Christian people, when they're faced with such a calamity, should basically, you, you know, subjugate themselves to God and try to find meaning in it. And Ezekiel, who was a, a prominent uh, Jewish leader in Richmond, Virginia, wrote him a letter saying that he was worried, writing that he was worried that Tyler had excluded Jews and other religious minorities. Well, Tyler uh, felt compelled enough to write Ezekiel a reply uh, in which he said that it had not been his uh, his intention to exclude Jews or any other religious group from commemorating Harrison's death. Um, I think the fact that, that Tyler took the time to write to Ezekiel indicates that at least partially his views on religious minorities were reflected in that letter. Uh, but he did, after all, refer to the American people as a Christian people. So I think he does uh, does really did really believe that the United States was a Christian nation at its heart. Um, Tyler's appointment of Water Crescent, who I, I just actually fed up a little bit about today, just really just couldn't believe the whole this whole story of this fellow um, Water Crescent as the consul to Palestine. Was was that of any significance in terms of policy or an attitude towards the Jewish people and, and a right to the Holy Land, or was it just you know another appointment? Well, Crescent, as you indicate, is a pretty interesting character. He was a Quaker from outside of Philadelphia. He was a prosperous farmer who would eventually convert to Judaism, um, and his family would actually have him committed to uh, an insane asylum because of that. But thankfully uh, for him, a court proceeding declared that that was not a basis for for commitment. So he was able to, to sidestep that uh, a little bit later on. But from my evidence and, and from what I know of the story, um, the appointment was was largely out of Tyler's hands. It was mostly John C. Calhoun, who was secretary of state, who received a letter from uh, the congressman representing the district in which uh, Crescent lived, supporting him for the position of consul to Palestine. Uh, Calhoun apparently told the president about it, told Tyler about it. Tyler signed off on it and Crescent uh, traveled to Palestine. But before he uh, was able to take his post, uh, another individual, another Pennsylvania congressman, Samuel Ingham, I believe, had written to Calhoun and said that he could find evidence that uh, Crescent was mentally unstable or unstable. Uh, so Calhoun then rescinded the appointment. Uh, Crescent stayed in Palestine anyway, stayed in Jerusalem anyway. And as I said, converted to Judaism not long thereafter. In, in, in today's environment of um, hyper-partisans, uh, actually, when you read, uh, you know, the wonderful book, I mean, it was very partisan <laughs> In the 1800s as well, um, do, do you see this 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 whole partisan these battles, the culture wars? Is, is this a continuation, just another phase in American history, a continuation of different divides? And and 
what's your message or what do you think, what do you think can be learned from John Tyler's presidency and how he, you know, tried to take a middle road? Well, I think people living contemporaneously always tend to look back at the politics of a previous time period as a, a good old days or the golden age when partisanship didn't dominate everything. And I always make the point to my students that partisanship began as soon as Washington took the oath of office, that you started to have these um, factions that, have, that ultimately developed into political parties, even though most of the founding fathers or most of the individuals associated with the start of the U.S. government had a decided anti-party feeling or anti-party ideology. Um, so I think to some extent, these, these kinds of battles, these very partisan, hyper-partisan battles have been with us from the very start. They've de- definitely taken on a different cast more recently. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to communicate partisanship. Social media, for example, I think has, has accelerated the process of the partisanship. And in that sense, I think that um, today's partisanship is probably worse than anything we saw before. Uh, but the, the, the notion that politics and issues are important um, has certainly been with us from the start. It was certainly no different in Tyler's day. Um, I think he was one of the most vilified presidents um, at the time that he was president and, and a little bit later um, after he left office. I think if, if you can glean any lesson from Tyler, it's that the, the nation will always somehow survive uh, a, a hyper-partisanship period. Um, certainly, you know, we've talked about how uh, Tyler's presidency led directly to the Civil War. But if you isolate Tyler's presidency and look at it within the context of the 1840s or early 1850s, the nation did survive the partisan battles that the Whigs engaged in with respect to Tyler uh, when Tyler was in office. So hopefully that's a a a sense you can get a sense that the, the nation will survive no matter how partisan things get. Professor, if, if you could pick um, another president to research and write your next book, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if you're working on your next book or not. We'll get to that in a second. But if you could pick another president, um, who would that be? Well, I, I joke uh, to I joke to a colleague once that what I should do is I should just write about presidents who succeeded to the office after the death of the incumbent. So that would mean that Millard Fillmore, who, who has a New York connection, Millard Fillmore was a New Yorker. Um, in that vein, Millard Fillmore would be the next topic. Um, you know, and I've I've thought about that. I thought at one point, maybe at some point, maybe doing uh, a Millard Fillmore biography. But I am interested in the the connection that he has with Tyler as being almost an accidental president. Got it. Okay. Um, any closing remarks, in, in, you know, in terms of, again, the message that you, you try to convey uh, to your students in terms of looking at this period and you know, how they should be looking at it? Well, I think the, the title of my book says it all president without a party. Uh, this is a president who is, unique, uh, stands alone among American presidents in being kicked out of his party. And I think it's instructive to, in the context of partisanship, it's instructive to to see how that process worked itself out, how it happened. Um, I hope that, that people who read my book will, will come away with an appreciation of how the, the dynamics of the two-party system um, contributed to Tyler being a president without a party. But I think he's a, a really unique president, someone who 
has largely been given short shrift by historians. And consequently, a lot of Americans don't know much about him. So I, I hope that, that my book changes that. Well, this again, it's, it's um, John Tyler, the president without a party. It's, it's a wonderful book. It's, um, you know, it's not a short book, but it's, it's highly researched. It's, it's a great read. It's a fascinating read. And just want to really thank you again for, for your time. This has been really very enlightening and very fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate what you said about my book. Um, if you could just let us um, fill us in on your, your next endeavor, your, your next book, your next research. Well, my wife and I are, are contracted by the University of Press of Kansas to write a biography of Julia Gardner Tyler, Tyler's second wife. So we're, um, we're at work on that as we speak right now. Um, and that actually has a lot of um, different historiographical aspects that, that we hope will, that people will find very enlightening. We're really, um, you know, very deep into the project right now and, and, and hopefully we'll have that uh, not too long into the future. Oh, fascinating. And, and she, she married uh, Tyler while he was president? Yes. Yes, he was the first president to get married in office. Uh, she okay. was 30 years younger than he was. So there was a, a bit of a scandal associated with it. Okay. Um, but he was the first president to, to marry while serving as president. Okay, fascinating. Um, again, thank you very much. I just want to, um, we'll, we'll edit this part, but... Uh, and just a little bit, uh, Professor Lee, about your, your background and how you became interested in John Tyler. Um, well, um, I had always been interested in Southern politics and antebellum politics more broadly within the larger context of how we got to the point where we, we had a civil war. Um, I went to graduate school at Louisiana State University to work with uh, my major professor, William Cooper, um, who... Uh, was a specialist in that in that field, and my my interest in Tyler derived out of that experience. And and again, John John Tyler, he, he is. We're talking now about the 19th century, correct? Yes, yes. First half of the 19th century, largely. First half. Okay, excellent. Okay.